from the creators who brought you RuPaul's Drag Race and Million Dollar Listing. This is World of Wonders Wow Report. Things that make us go wow. All right. Um, welcome, everybody. Um, welcome to the Wow Report, where, you know, every week we count down the top 10 things that make us go wow. Wow. Fenton Bailey, co founder of World of Wonder, joined by Jane St. James. And you know what? This week we're doing a very special thing. We're doing. Uh, occasionally we do themed episodes, but this is the themed episode of all themed episodes. Mm-hmm. Certainly one I'm super duper excited about. We're celebrating the publication of Blake Gopnik's Warhol, uh, epic, epic biography, 967 wow. pages long. Wow. There you go. There it is. So excited that Blake is here to talk to us and help us inform us and enlighten us as we count down the top 10 things about Andy Warhol that made us go well. Because look, you know, it's it's Andy's world and we're just living in it, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. you bet. And I'm sort of more than living in it. I'm bathing in it. I'm drowning in it. <laughs> You're marinating <laughs> in it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Too much but Andy. Jump in because the number 10 item is... Number 10. Warhol by Blake Goldman. Ah, There we go again. I can show it off again. There it is. Look at that. How's that? And this is on super thin paper, may I say. If it was on normal paper, it would be twice as thick as this. And it's not a picture book. There's actual text in it. There's a little bit of text. Actually, the pictures are one of my favorite things, though. We've got 52 pictures of Andy. Each chapter starts with a picture, and you get to watch him grow older. And some of the pictures have never been seen before. Really? That's one of my favorite things in the whole book. Yeah. Now, you talk about um, it took you eight years to write, or it did it take, is that with uh, starting with the research and then writing, or was there an, a marinating time before that? How long have you been immersed in Andy Warhol? You know, but really seven years of research and writing. And I did the two things together because I knew if I left the writing to the end, it would never be done. So I did the two things together. And it's, you know, I, it's a hell of a life to catalog. Let me tell you, it was really, if I had known what it would be like, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have taken on the project. It was crazy. Um, can you have an existential crisis? Like, you know, the, uh, your own identity, mer- you know, just feeling that you've been body snatched or, taken over by Warhol. You know, I didn't know that until just after I finished when I realized that if someone was talking to me and they mentioned, you know, I don't know, bicycles in my head, I'd have this little, this little uh, thing that would go on where I, where I would say, Oh, bicycles. Well, I remember that in 1982 Warhol is photographed on a bicycle. There was (laughs) nothing in the world that didn't trigger an Andy Warhol thought. And I'm just getting over that now. If you say glasses, (laughs) I'll think how many pairs of glasses by Andy I've handled, et cetera. Before the the radio show started, I was saying that I feel that Andy is just, he's a cipher in whatever you put into him is what you get out of him. Did you find that um, at some point that you grew to sort of hate him a little bit? Or did you just, do you love him more now than you did when you first started? You know, I think I respect him more and I love him as an artist and as a thinker, actually, as a really smart guy. I mean, he did some crappy stuff, but most of us have done crappy things at one time or another in our lives. He also did really generous stuff, you know, yes. so as a, as a person, you know, he was a guy, but he was brilliant. And I, the more I studied him, the more brilliant he seemed to me, I have to say. What well, made you want to write it? What was the sort of, you know... 
the genesis. You know, it was pretty straightforward. It was pretty obvious that we needed a, you know, a 900 page biography of Andy Warhol. There were so many myths floating around about Andy Warhol and so many stupid things said about his art and, you know, all sorts of, you know, there have been memoirs, but they're from a particular point of view. We just needed a kind of basic life of Andy Warhol. So it, it didn't take much imagination to realize that book needed to be written. Well, I was going to say, because, uh, you know, there has been like the Bob Colicello book, which is, like you said, a very specific point of view. Yeah. Um, there has been, you know, Andy's own, uh, you know, like popism in A to Z, things like that. And then there have been, you know, some a lot of artistic things. So you think that is so so you don't feel that there was anything that sort of encompassed everything. Up until no, that. I mean, there were just after he died, like a couple of years after he died, three people wrote biographies. So there are those three 30 some year old biographies. Oh, the but they're not. Bockris, right? the, is... There's Bockris and then a guy called Giles wrote one, too. And an art critic wrote one. Um, but, not, you know, they were written so quickly and so soon after he died that, for instance, they didn't have access to all of his records. And that was a big deal for me. I spent weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks at the Andy Warhol Museum and their archive. And just, you know, he kept everything. He kept every bank stub, every every ticket stub from the shows he went to see. So that just gave me an incredible window into every moment almost in his life. I mean, I could almost get down to the hour on some days of what he was doing when. It was amazing. It was beautiful. Did you have different titles for the book or was it always going to be called Warhol? I had a longer title, which is actually what they used in England. They wanted a longer title, which was Andy Warhol, A Life as Art. Because I kind of like, you know, there are all these books that are called A Life in Art. So I thought, well, he's a work of art, so I'll call it that. And then my editors here in in United States said, you know, you don't need all that. It's just Warhol. That's all you need. Uh-huh. You know, he is Warhol. He's not even Andy, you know. There he is, Warhol. And I said, yeah, you're right. I don't need anything more... I don't need more explanation than that. He's self-explanatory. Well, I, I love that your remark about um, someone said, you know, is he an artist who thought outside the box? And, and you said he thought outside of any artistic universe whose laws would allow boxes to exist. That's right. <laughs> you know, that's, I think the secret to him is he just always wanted to surprise. He always wanted to be doing something more interesting and strange than anyone else could do. I mean, in that way, he's a very straightforward modern artist, except he takes it further than anyone had ever taken it. You know, it's one thing to make, I don't know, uh, an abstract painting that everyone says, oh, my God, look at it. It's just a blue line or something. But Andy, you know, was completely surprising at every moment of his life. I mean, he, you know, he was on the love boat. Right. Is there anything stupider? <laughs> Is there anything you were not supposed to do uh, as an artist that was be on the love boat? And yet, there he was on the love boat, you know. What's your first memory of Andy Warhol that you as a, you know, was it Love Boat, for example? Because you're, you're so young. So you were like, what, what was your first uh, uh, You know what? Uh, well, my first memory of him is uh, last for hours and hours and hours because we had a print of one of the Marilyns, of the first Marilyn, on the wall of our bathroom when I was little. So I remember spending hours or however many minutes it took in those days sitting on the john looking at that and really thinking about it. Like there's a little weird thing in her collar that always bugged me my whole life. And I only found out what it meant, what it was when I started writing this book. So what was it? It's it's weird. She has a totally weird collar, but the way Andy did the picture, it looks like a little bit of abstraction 
by her neck. It's a weird, she's wearing this really weird shirt in the photograph that he used. And it's sort of, it's typical of Andy. Like it's something that falls apart when you do the silk screening. It doesn't make any sense, but he preserved it. Instead of saying, oh, that doesn't make sense. You can't figure out what that is. He thought, oh, that's kind of neat. You can't figure out what that is, you know? Um, and it turns out I was actually at his first ever museum exhibition in Philadelphia in 1965. Wait, the one, is that the one where Edie put, put down the, 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 the sleeves onto the crowd? Right. Yeah. He got stuck on this staircase, him and all of his followers. And it, they ran up it to avoid their fans. And it turns out that it didn't lead anywhere. So they were stuck, like pursued <laughs> by literally thousands of fans. And they just sat there and people would throw up like Campbell's soup cans and he would sign them. So I was there two years years old. My parents took us, but I have no memory of it. Unfortunately, I could pretend I should pretend I do, but I don't. We have a friend, uh, Fenton and I have a friend who was at there when he was a student. Uh, Stephen Sabin was at that uh, exhibit. And that was one of his formative memories. And it always sort of, uh, you know, stayed with him. You know, that's I argue that that's when Andy became the Andy we know. You know, the leather jacket, that whole thing. I have a lot. I've got page after page after page. The sort of cool cat, weird, silent Andy, I think really gels at that moment. That's when you decide, okay, that's who I'm going to be. I'm going to be the freak, you know, sort of factory freak is born. I mean, that's pretty much the first time he ever appears in a leather jacket is at that event. That's interesting. That's fabulous. We're going to move on, but we'll keep, stay with us time and we'll actually be asking you all these questions. So, um, Number nine. What did you pick for number nine, James? Number nine. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about oh. the Warhol Diaries. Oh, I got them too. I got yeah, them too. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the it's Warhol bigger Diaries, than my I book. Do. I hate it. It's not <laughs> fair. It's bigger than my book. Pages, though. I think the Warhol Diaries are only really eight hundred pages. Well, eight hundred and seventy-two, I believe, and they start from nineteen seventy-six and they go till five days before his death in in January, I believe, of eighty-seven. February, the February. Last, the, the the last entry, I think, was in oh, January twenty-ninth, yeah. something like that. Um, and it was, you know, it started, as you mentioned, it was a way for him to sort of document where he was every night and what he spent every night for the tax, in case he was audited. He was yeah, audited. Mostly, yeah, it was supposed years. to be just his receipts. Yes. Of course, it, it ended up being a very, you know, sort of bitchy uh, running monologue of his, <laughs> his nightly uh, exploits. He was It was told to Pat Hackett every morning at 9 a.m. and he dictated it to her. And um, I... I, I'm in the, the diaries at one point I, I mentioned, I just have to put that out wow. there. I believe I was probably in there a number of times, but I have a very famous incident where I cornered Pat Hackett at a nightclub and drunkenly ke- kept her hostage for about an hour. And she was like a wolf trying to gnaw her <laughs> arm off to get away from me. And after that, she, she bolted whenever I entered the room. So I have a feeling that I was in there and I've been edited out. And I think, you know, because the the, the diaries are like 20,000 pages and yeah. only 800 of them have been published. Did you get a chance to go through so, uh, all the other 19,200 pages? No, you know, uh, that stuff, there's some weird legal thing around all that. And I'm not completely up to speed on it. But the tapes, for instance, that it's based on won't be released to scholars for, I think, another 15 years or so. Oh, really? So you, 
you know, you can listen to them, but you can't quote from them and you can't take notes. So they're kind of useless. They're fun. That, that, like 50 them. year thing. It has to be 50 years for it to be legal or something. No, it's complicated. And no one has ever like filled me in on the details. There's elaborate legal reasons and I'm not completely clear what well, they are. I wonder what well, is in there. I mean, there's well, gotta be some juicy stuff. That's the thing, you know, um, a lot of people are dead that he would have said nasty things about. So that saves you the libel charge, you know. I you know, um, I was just opening up to random pages this morning and I got to um, the he calls Elizabeth. He said, Elizabeth Taylor, Liz was there and she looked like a belly button. He said <laughs> she, she, said she looked like a fat cupie doll. And yeah. then. I opened up to the page where um, Liza and uh, uh, Robert De Niro bang on his door at 6 a.m. and demand all his drugs because they'd been out partying at Studio 54. And then there was another one where um, uh, he's talking about how the Halston crowd, they've adopted this new accent and they all lisp and they all call each other pussycat. And he found, he just thought that was absolutely the silliest thing ever. It's just it, it's just a treasure trove. Whenever yeah, you open amazing. it, to whatever page, right? Yeah. And of course, you don't know. Sorry. Yeah. Well, it, it can't be that he libels other people because he's not that flattering about many people in the diaries as it is, right? I mean, he's the way happy. he goes in on Jackie O and Lee Radzwell. <laughs> I mean, it's a thing of beauty. It is just. But he, he's usually right. You know, he's yes. usually completely right. You know? <laughs> I mean, Andy's supposed to be such a goofball, but he's actually really smart and caustic and knows when bullshit is being bandied about, you know? Yes. You know, that there's no true. dummy. I actually thought, like, that, sort of moving on to number eight. Number eight. I wanted to ask you, I think what's maybe most unusual about him as an artist or this icon or this totally important figure is the fact that he he actually died before he died and you begin your book with the first chapter of a biography is death you know prelude yeah. death and i think you know uh it was what june 3rd 1968 when he was shot by valerie solanas he actually was dead for an instant and wasn't this some do you see this as a a major shift or a a unique experience that fundamentally changed him because a lot of people have written about how he was neither dead. He, there was a sort of deadness to him after that, that he was sort of like a ghost. And he himself said that he felt he was watching a TV show, that he didn't feel himself that he was alive in the sense of being in life and immersed in it. What, what do you think? Yeah. You know, it's one of, you know, there's so many stories that are told again and again about Andy and that's one of them, but my thing is that if you look at what's happening before he's shot, he's already leaving behind the 60s counterculture, right? The whole flower power thing. It's all gone in January already, and he gets shot in June. So I think he was ready to make that move already. I don't think, I don't think a lot happens to Andy that he doesn't want to have happened to him. When he makes a change in his life, he got bored really quickly. Or you could phrase it another way. He realized when something got boring and being the Andy Warhol of the 1960s, I think by 1968 was dead. That was over. You know, he realized the 70s had to come before the 60s were over. Um, and that's what's going on already. And then he gets shot and it just sort of speeds it up and gives him an excuse to make the change too, right? 
All of a right. sudden, there's a tidy narrative, a tidy story he can tell. Oh, yeah, I was shot and then I changed. But I think he was changing already. I think he needed to change and he knew he needed to change. So getting shot was a slightly painful excuse for, <laughs> for making the change. Slightly painful. You know. And wasn't he furious that um that it, he was shot the same day as the assassination of Robert Kennedy and that bumped him off the front page? Wasn't that yeah, was, <laughs> yeah, his bad timing. Bad timing uh-huh. to be shot. He was actually shot a couple of days before. But oh. the way the timing, see, he was shot in the late afternoon, so he didn't get into the morning papers of that day. He only got in the next day. But Bobby Kennedy was lucky to be shot late at night, so he got into the next day's morning papers, right? So Lucky, lucky Robert Kennedy. There <laughs> you That's a bad example of Andy having bad timing. Yeah, yeah that's right. That's right. But you, know, you can forgive him, I think. A lot of people sort of blame him for being shot. It's an interesting, unusual, they sort of feel that it was the wages of his decadent factory life. Do you, do you subscribe to that at all? No, I mean, except that, you know, he was interested in weird people. And Valerie Solanas, who was, among other things, incredibly smart. She wasn't a trivial person. She was incredibly smart and unfortunately a paranoid schizophrenic or at any rate, deeply psychotic at that moment. You know, people go in and out of these things. And at that moment, she was psychotic. And I mean, to kill Andy is an example of the patriarchy, right? To choose Andy Warhol as the <laughs> ultimate male you're going to kill really does not make a lot of sense. <laughs> You could tell she was sort of a little on the strange side if she thought Andy was the person to kill. <laughs> and also, what was the art critic who was also shot at the same... He was there, I think he was interviewing Andy, and he was shot his... He Mary Lamaya, yeah. Yeah. I feel he was he barely was... hurt, though. He was going out to dinner that night showing people his bullet wounds. That shows you how unhurt oh. he was that night. Oh, I see, I see, okay. All right, let's take a quick break. Uh, normally, Blake asks us a question, but we have another Blake here today. And yeah, really, it's my Blake, turn. You should do it, yeah. Okay, here's a really, really, really hard one. What is the origin of Andy Warhol's use of silver foil to decorate with? All right. We'll be right back after the break. We're with Blake Gottnick, and we're counting down the top 10 things of Andy's world that make us go, wow. wow. Is it wow or G? Was his most popular, did he say wow or G more? Wow, G, I think. Fabulous. Oh, wow. Fabulous. Yeah. You're listening to The Wow Report on Radio Andy. We'll be right back. You're listening to World of Wonders Wow Report. That make us go wow. Welcome back to the Wow Report. All right, so Blake, you're up. We you asked us a, a Warhol trivia question before the break. Uh, what was it? What was the origin of Warhol's use of silver foil to decorate with? Well, I always thought that that was Billy Name who started uh, in in a tweaky mess. He started tinfoiling the, the walls of the factory. But am I incorrect about that? Well, that's always a story that's been told, right? Oh, okay, okay. But there's more to uh, it? Well, I found... What was that, Fenton? Billy Name, didn't he choose the silver that he painted the factory from a bridge in his hometown upstate? That's another. That is his story, and he should stick to it. Um, but 
I was doing some research on this uh, play that Warhol did the decor for in 1959. So before he even gets the pop art, um, it was Jacques Cocteau's Orphée done for Barnard College at Columbia University. Um, and uh, the, it turns out I found these contact sheets of the images and he decorated the set with silver foil already in 1959. Ah. Right. And Cocteau was a huge hero of his because, of course, Cocteau was really important gay artist. Sure. Um, and uh, and in fact, the whole the director and the and the main actor were also gay, so it was a little gay production. And it turns out Andy was decorating with silver foil already at that point, so he didn't need Billy Name to tell him about you know spreading sp- silver foil all over things. And that's typical of Andy. He loved actually giving credit to other people, saying you know, oh, so and so gave me the idea, even when it was totally already part of what he was interested in, what he was doing. Well, I wonder if there's a lot with with Warhol. There's a lot of always sort of muddying the water and putting out multiple stories and multiple narratives, so that so that there's all people are always guessing as to what the real story is. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things I like to say about my book is that it's really a nonfiction book about a fictional character called Andy Warhol, because <laughs> he really is just this thing he created, and it's so hard to get at the truth. You know, I've done my best, but a lot of the time, all you can do is say. There are the following four stories, and there's no way of knowing if any of them are true. Right. Well, look, and, the, and the book is absolutely fascinating, and it's so fascinating to read and learn about, you know, other people who were silk screening and, and the way that so much of what he did later was anticipated earlier. And it was just, it's just fascinating to see that because we all think, oh, suddenly it's soup cans, but actually, you know, you unpack it and explain it, and it's just fantastic. Now, James, in college, all the stuff he did in college that just predicts what he ends up doing later. Right. Right. James, what do you have at number seven? Number seven. Um, I believe this was yours, Fenton. We were going to talk about uh, Warhol's mother and sort of the things, uh, how fascinating a character she was and how fascinating it was that he kept her in his life as long as he did and lived with her and, and, and all of that, I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you bet. I think she's sort of the most underrated figure in his whole life. I mean, everyone or a lot of people know that he had this babushka mother from the old country, you know, from Slovakia who lived with him or in his basement, you know. But it, I think that she was actually a really interesting woman, really cultured in her own weird way, a real kind of homegrown avant-gardist. And when you talk to people or you read about her even as a kid she was already interested in art she was singing in choirs where your only men were supposed to sing i think she really pushed andy to excel at being eccentric like that i think he got that straight from her well i mean she would have to be an extraordinary woman to to, to create you know to birth such an extraordinary person i i just don't think there's any way you can get around that and she also, you know, there's the famous story about how Truman Capote was stalking Andy and she was the one who sort of let Truman in and sat and gave him tea and talked to him for hours and sort of gave him access maybe a little bit or planted the seed in Andy that Truman was somebody to know. Do you think that's that's true, that she had that sort of influence on Andy? She, I mean, she certainly had tons of influence. I mean, one of the questions everyone asks is, did she know that he was gay? Right. And did she have patience with that? Because after all, in her religion, they were a strict, rather unusual denomination of Roman Catholics. 
being gay was not acceptable, but I think she had figured it out. And a bunch of people I talked to, including Andy's first lover, think that she probably knew what was going on. She chose not to be explicit about it. And she was always talking about wanting to find a nice wife for Andy. But I think she knew about it and realized that he was, uh, that it made him vulnerable and that he needed protection. You know, from an early age, he wasn't a normal, tough kid from working class Pittsburgh. And I think she realized he needed to find a different way to excel if he was going to survive in Pittsburgh, you know. One of the most fascinating moments is when he's in New York and the mother comes to stay invited or not, I'm not quite sure, but but then they, they end up having a big fight at some point and she went away and, and did she not come back and say, I am Andy Warhol, but she claimed that she was Andy Warhol. And I just thought that's so, in a way she is, right? Yeah, it's an amazing story. It's one of those amazing stories I couldn't leave out, even though I've got no way of knowing if it was true. You know, one person tells that story, but it's too, in a way, metaphorically, it's true, whether it's literally true or not. She certainly was the, the a force behind Andy, I think. And that's why he lived with her for 20 years, you know, 1952 to her death in the early 70s. They were living together. I thought yeah, and I think, it was very sad, right? It was a very sad end. Well, she was a very old woman and she she actually had tuberculosis. I found the, the hospital report. She was very sick and then she got dementia at the end. Um, Andy couldn't take care of her. So he sent her to back to Pittsburgh where she was in a quite a fancy nursing home for the last couple of years and then died. But that's um, right. It wasn't too bad. It could have been worse. Okay, let's move on to number six. Number six. Um, James? James, 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 number six. When it's- Andy met David Beckham? When, 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 <laughs> Andy the sports fan. That. Yeah, that great moment. <laughs> well, yeah, I think you take this one, Ben, because I, I, I can't read my handwriting. I, just, okay, I want to know all about when Andy met David Bowie, because by all accounts, this seems to be one of the most awkward encounters of two people ever. Yeah, it was in September of 1971. And David Bowie, who wasn't really quite David Bowie yet, he was still kind of a hippie, a long-haired hippie, showed up at the factory. And there's actually a video, and sometimes you can find it on YouTube before they take it down. And it's uh, it's just tragic, because Bowie does a really lame uh, mime routine. You know, <laughs> nothing. he's so corny. And uh, it's just so sad to see him being kind of useless. And you can just imagine cool cat Andy just thinking this guy is is pitiful. You know? I mean, he does this mime routine where he does this thing where he makes the heart shape as though he loves Andy. You know? oh. and it just makes you want to just cry. It's so bad. But it um, uncomfortable doing all those auditions, you know, where it just seemed like a theater of cruelty where you're just stuck in front of something and made to just perform it's not you're not given any lines you're not given any direction and and then everyone's just staring at you i think it would be a psychological torture and I mean, yet some people actually manage to thrive in that environment and yeah. you know manage to yeah. have, you either sink or you swim when the camera goes on and you have no direction and and you know what in the end that brought them together is bowie's shoes he was wearing these little girls mary janes these yellow mary janes <laughs> and andy love loved that, that. And I found a painting of Andy, a self-portrait, where he, he was nude. This is like in when he was 18 years old. He painted himself nude with little girls Mary Janes on his feet. 
So that brought them together. That's hot. Well, I imagine at some point, uh, Andy must have sort of become enthralled with the person that David became, right? I mean, as the 70s progressed, did they, they, they became closer, right? Uh, yeah, I don't know how close they became. Andy didn't really like sharing the limelight all that much. And I imagine that, I mean, I think he probably thought that, that Bowie had sort of was stealing from him in some way, you know, well, gender that, bending, you know. Is it true when in that meeting that uh, Bowie performed his song uh, Andy Warhol from the Hunky Dory album to Andy and that Andy was completely nonplussed? And after he left, he was like, shouldn't I be getting royalty that, <laughs> that sounds that, totally uh, Andy. I don't know about the royalty thing, but he did like to make a profit. He, I can't defend him from that. He did like to make a profit. For sure. All right. Okay, let's move on to number five. Number five. James, I, I feel I'm doing a little thing here, yeah, but... Well, um, <laughs> That's fine. I know, but this is this is another area of your expertise where you are obsessed with the piss paintings, and so my God, you, you let, let it flow, baby. Let the piss flow. <laughs> I am obsessed because I think that they're, they're unusual in that almost post the pre-pop period, they're the only thing that exists that's completely one of a kind. You know, every piss painting is different from another, and. <laughs> and also, I just love the idea that they're pissing on the, the Pollocks and the, the macho abstract expressionist who denied yeah. Warhol and excluded him. And this is sweet revenge. And the other thing I like about them is that in terms of the price, they seem to be less valued than maybe because who wants to put a big piss painting on your wall? I mean, they're still expensive, but they're not 30 million. They're like more like a million, you know? Yeah, just a million, you know. Let me check my pockets here and see if I have a spare million. Oh, I don't today. Um, yeah, and they're also kind of beautiful, which is kind of amazing if you think that these things are, are piss paintings, have the name piss paintings, but they're actually pretty good looking. If you didn't know that they were made by a bunch of guys peeing on them, you'd think, oh, that's pretty good abstraction. They really work as abstractions. You know, well, do you know, know that I think it's hot that it's a, if you're sort of a piss queen, I think that's uh, right up your alley. Well, I mean, that's the other thing about them. They're clearly a reference to sort of early 70s, you know, completely crazy sure. gay clubs, right? That's And everyone at the time must have known that, even if they didn't want to talk about it, you know, that that was what they were really referring to. Places like the Anvil in New York, you know, in the Meatpacking District. Sure. That's what they were about. They I were wonder sexy. how stable they are as works of art in terms of lasting thousands of years. I can only imagine they probably decay they are still changing, apparently. That's one of the things about them, which is great in a way. That's neat, right? Um, but apparently they aren't very stable. Whether that means they'll decay or just change, we don't know. I think they're meant. I mean, I think Andy would be perfectly happy to hear they were changing so long as they don't disappear from the face of the earth. I think that's that's pretty neat. Now, do you have any Warhols? I don't know. I could never afford a Warhol. I'm the salary of a biographer there ain't nothing. I mean, I, I wonder what I could buy. I've got its books, which I'm happy to have. I, I, I bought one of the cow wallpapers that he did in uh, oh. Seattle in 78. You know, like the, they weren't the original cow wallpapers. He redid them for an exhibition. And a, um, but if you could have a Warhol, what would, it, what, would, what, what would you pick? If you were like anything, you'd pick it. Oh, that's a hard question. Uh, uh, 
I kind of like that portrait of Basquiat done on top of his painting. I like the oh, mix yeah. of those two. You know, it's the only one that he ever did on top. And the idea that you could tell that like Basquiat's a threat to him, right? Although apparently uh-huh. it was Basquiat who asked to to be done on top of his painting. Uh-huh. I was there at that um at that uh, opening at the at the Castelli Gallery that um the oh. the with the boxing ad. Remember the the big boxing? Um, yeah, yeah, the, of course. Yeah, I think I would get either one of the um the angels or the shoes. I think with some of those oh. early early ones, I love those or the cats. Those are They're adorable. Cheap. You could get those pretty damn cheap, you know, because he really? made what so many of them. What was that? What is cheap? Oh, you know, I'm so bad at the market, but I think you can get them for. I mean, it doesn't sound so cheap, but I think you can get one for maybe ten or twenty thousand. Really? I don't know. I can, there we I'm go. useless at the market. I'm useless. I try not to know about the. <laughs> no, no, let's take a break, okay? Um, what, Blake, have you got a question for us to test our... Uh, this is an easier one that you might just be able to get, and that is, do you know what the last movie that Warhol himself directed all by himself? So his last real movie? Oh. All right, you're listening to Wire Report on Radio Andy. We'll be right back after the break. You're listening to World of Wonders Wow Report. Things that make us go wow. All right, welcome back to the Wow Report. I'm Fenton. I'm here with Jane St. James and Blake Jacobs, our producer, and Blake Gopnik, author of Warhol. The uh, New York Times calls it the true, the first true doorstop biography. It's pretty great, right? <laughs> Because it's a massive. If nothing else, even if you don't want to read it, it's really good. You know, if you've got a door that keeps blowing shut, you can just use this. You know, that's and why I wrote it. Echo Books, right? Which is an imprint of HarperCollins. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And you asked exactly. a question before the break. I did. I asked, "What was the last movie that Andy himself directed?" Because so after we- you know, in the seventies, he did. He was a producer of movies that were directed by Paul Morrissey, which I don't think are really Andy's works of art. Right. But so it, it's not Frankenstein or any of those. No, but, those were all directed by Paul Morrissey, produced by Andy Warhol. I'm going to say, well, the one he was I mean, it's so early on, but maybe it's the only one he directed. No, yeah, no, he did, well, he did 500 movies in the 60s, something like four or 500 movies. I'm going to say, what was the Maria Montez one? What was the, um, no? No, that's that's in 1965. This is actually after he gets shot, just after he's just come back. And as I'm allowed to use bad words. It was called Fuck. Oh. <laughs> and it was just two factory acolytes fucking, more or less. Like- talking mostly and then occasionally fucking and then, and then talking some more. Was it on the couch? And then they had to change the name. What was that? Oh, they changed the name to Blue Movie, right? To Blue Movie, because you couldn't very well put up ads for fuck, right? So it got changed to Blue Movie. Um, It was the first sort of semi-mainstream movie that actually showed full-on sex. Heterosexual, I should say. That made it easier, I think. Right, right. There you go. Moving on with our countdown of all things Warhol, things that make us go... Wow, gee, fabulous. Number four, James, what do you got? Number four. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the society portraits and um, some of the drag queen portraits. Some, a lot of the 70s work that he did. 
um, which are some of my favorites. I love, we were talking, Denton and I were talking about the Ethel Skull portraits. And yeah. uh, I, I have a soft spot for a lot of, you know, the society people of the times. So let's just sort of talk a little bit about those and how that sort of, it, I don't think it elevated his art, but it certainly put him into the mainstream and made him a, a shit ton of money, right? Yeah, I mean, I see, I think a lot of those portraits are kind of art supplies that he used in this other work of art that he called business art, right? He declared at a certain point as a kind of conceptual art project that just being good in business as an artist was an artwork itself. So I think a lot of the, whenever he made money, he was allowed to, he was able to have an excuse for making money by saying, well, that's part of my business art project. But I don't think it was just an excuse. I think that was kind of interesting and serious, you know? Because a lot well, of those also, portraits... It was a way yeah. for him to sort of navigate his way into high society. Yeah. And um, which it sort of, everything sort of fed... Uh, the more he, the, the higher he got in society, the more commissions he got, the richer he got, the more, and then the more he was accepted yeah. into high society. So it all sort of fit, fed on itself. Although, as you said earlier, you know, the diary makes it clear that he's not just your average kind of star fucker. You know, it's not just that he liked high society. He always had a distance from it. He realized when it was superficial, you know, he wasn't stupid. He, his relationship, I think, to high society was complicated and interesting. You know, it wasn't just your average sort of sycophant wanting to be around rich, famous people. Well, but do you think it was sort of like you you had your chance when I was younger and you sort of, you, you snubbed me and now this is my revenge that I'm going to be, you know, with Diane of Reland every night and I'm going to be you know, at, at the, with, with the Pauline, um, you know, Rothschild and, and I'm, I'm going to sort of take over your society because you wouldn't have me when I was younger. Yeah. And I think even the portraits actually have a caustic edge to them. You know, I think a lot of the portraits make it very clear that the people he's portraying who are paying like $40,000 for a couple of portraits are actually incredibly superficial. And I think the portraits, especially when you see a whole bunch of them, you think, wow, he's really, made the most superficial portraits ever and they're perfect illustrations of the superficiality of some uh -huh. of these people. Well, know? there's also a little bit of, uh, you're going to pay $40,000 and I'm going to do the bare minimum. Yeah. To get art. Yeah. That's um, right. Exactly. But, I'm going to do the same thing I've done a million times. <laughs> yes. There's going to be no originality here. Um, yeah. But then you also see like with the drag queen portraits, there is a lot of love that he puts into them and there is sort of a, a respect with uh, he still goes back to counterculture and he still goes back to the underground, even when he is climbing the society ladder. Yeah, although he made a fortune for those, it wasn't his idea to do them. There was this Italian dealer who thought they'd be they'd be a good a good bet. So I, it wasn't Andy's idea originally. It was this guy, and I think I think the contract called for maybe a million dollars. It was a lot of money. I can't remember anymore. Um, so the idea came from someone else, but that was often the case with Andy. And then he takes the idea. I think those are amazing, you know, images of what it is, I guess, to be a drag queen, the complications of being in a performance, but also mattering a lot to you. I mean, I think there's a lot and some of them he really gets at with his fingers. So they look distressed. You know, there's a sense of angst in those two, I think, you know, so he captures and a lot. I think with, without them, we probably, Marsha P. Johnson might be lost a little more to history than she was. I think he really sort of elevated some of the, the, the importance of, of what they were doing at the time. Yeah, some people think the opposite. You know, some people have really gone after him for not having sufficient respect. Oh, to, really? For, 
Yeah, he's so there's there's some people today who really think there's a problem with those portraits. But I think given the time, like given when they were done, I think it was pretty brave to do. I mean, we're really comfortable with the notion of drag now. But he got a lot of those drag. He he found those models or his people found those models at a place called the Gilded Grape, you know, in mm-hmm. Times Square, which was as rough and crazy a place as you could imagine. It wasn't like a mainstream drag club like they have now, right? No, it was a hustler. I mean, it was mostly a hustler bar in a in a pickup, you know, like where Sugar Daddy went. Yes, Sister <laughs> May just wrote a book about it, which is a lot of uh, memories there. You know, but also I think that, you know, that thanks to Warhol Drag, he really did break those boundaries of bringing drag queens, albeit onto the margins, but having them at the factory, he... He he began that process, I think, because they were definitely drag was definitely looked more down on, as you say, than it is now. Oh, yeah. But the person who really, as an artist, championed drag queens and, and non-binary gender people was was Warhol. You know, yeah, I mean, already in the like '64, he's already doing that. You know, with Mario Montez, he's doing movies with drag queens, and I found this amazing thing, amazing story about when he was in college the students were all asked to do a self-portrait. So everyone, the students all did their self-portraits and then they had to show them to the class and Andy showed a picture of a little girl with ringlets. And, you know, his classmate said, what's that? You were supposed to do a self-portrait. Is that your sister? And he said, no, I always wanted to know what I would look like as a girl. So he was always playing with gender, you know, from a very young age and he never stopped. That's right. Sashay, you stay. All right. Number three. Actually, this is related, right, James? Number three. Number three. Oh, right. Well, you know, um, this is Andy, Andy, the nightclubber. Andy is, is, is a clubbing god, nightclub god. Um, and, you know, you, you think that there are three very distinct phases of his, you know, going out where you have the 60s leather jacket, underground S&M sort of Andy you have the 70s uh, Studio 54 Andy. And then in the 80s, you have uh, Area Andy when he's palling around with Keith Haring and Jean-Michel and um, uh, going to going out maybe a, a, a lot again as, you know, there was maybe a lull after Studio 54. And then in the 80s, when when I we would see him out, uh, he, he was out again every single night at every single club. And I just sort of wonder if you want to sort of if if you have a favorite Andy period or. uh... Boy, you know so much about this more than than I do about this, James. I don't know (laughs) where to start. I'm worried I'll get it all wrong. My favorite favorite club moment for Andy is at an area where they, you know, they decorated. They got artists to decorate the club and he made this piece that was called the invisible sculpture, which was just himself as a work of art in a vitrine, you know, next to a sort of classic pedestal, like you'd get in a museum. Um, and he just stood there and there was a wall label, a classic wall label that said, you know, mix, uh, I don't remember what it said, mixed media or something, you know, Andy Warhol invisible sculpture. And he was the work of art. And when someone asked him about it, he said, I've been working on this work of art for 20 years. Well, but it also worked the other way because there were nights when he couldn't be there and yet it would just be an empty pedestal. And it was still the same work of art as when he was there. It didn't matter whether he was there or he wasn't there. Because he was somewhere in the world. That work of art was somewhere, (laughs) you know. Uh, So I love that, that moment in it. I mean, you know, to be perfectly frank, I could have written a thousand pages just on that and every page would have been the same. 
there was a moment where the stories, I mean, I got 8 million stories about Andy nightclubbing and at a certain point it was like, well, what do I do with another story about another night that Andy spent in a nightclub? Well, volume two, I think. Well, there you go. It would be a little repetitive, you know. You know, I, I do remember though seeing him one night at the Palladium and it, he came in and, you know, it would create a buzz, right? Everyone would be like, Andy Warhol's here, Andy Warhol's here. And I remember looking at him and thinking, my God, you look so old. And, <laughs> and yet now you're older than he is. He's yeah. younger, younger. I mean. I, I do remember that, though. I remember at Area seeing him a lot in Danceteria. And the minute he walked in, there was that the room would elevate. The energy yeah. in the room would elevate. And it seemed everybody, every conversation was sort of turned towards him. And everyone was performing to get his attention. And I've never seen anybody like that before or since where just the entire room is trying in, in the room could be filled with Robin Williams and, and, you know, Christopher Reeve and like all these famous people, but every single person there was trying to perform for him. It was just fascinating. That's amazing. And remember, this is a guy who was got famous 20 years earlier for pop art, right? The fact that he's, he still mattered in 1983, 84, 85, it's kind of a miracle. I mean, and, and arguably was even more famous at, at 20 years later, you know? In some ways, yeah, he was more out in the world. He was more part of popular culture instead of standing to one side, you know? And I think he's sort of that way now. I mean, look at us. We're spending an hour talking about him, you know, on YouTube. That's, and it's you not know, enough. It's, we need more. We need yeah, more. That's right. It's This is just going to have to be the Andy channel all the time from now on. <laughs> We'll have you back every single week. That sounds like an excellent idea. You know, number two. Number two. I wanted to ask you about the last set of paintings you ever did, the last supper paintings. Mm-hmm. And I, I just find it so spooky and moving and just prescient or bizarre that, that of all the things he would pick as his last series of paintings or that the last thing he would paint would be the last supper. It's just mind-boggling. And there's a story that really, I'm not really into ghosts and what have you, but there's a story I read about, he went to the opening, I think it was in Milan of these paintings, and he was in the crowd, he wasn't feeling that well, but he saw a a shadowy, widowy figure in black clothes and completely freaked out and literally fled the gallery and flew right home. And then a few days later, of course, he had the went into hospital for the operation. And Wait, so you think that he saw the specter of death at, a, at an opening? Yeah, but I've not that? ever heard that story, and that sounds like the kind of story. I mean, Andy is a magnet for stories, and that the word apocryphal springs to mind. <laughs> I interviewed the woman who was there with him, and she didn't tell me anything like that at all. Uh, <laughs> But I like the story, so I'm going with it, you know. <laughs> Second edition of my book is going to include that story as a fact, for sure. <laughs> another, another Warhol book that's all the apocryphal. Like, like the Bible <laughs> has the apocryphal books. That that's right. The Bible. That's, that's right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but what do you think about those Last Supper paintings? Like that whole, I, the fact that he would think to do that and the fact that it would end up being his last painting, is that, do you... Do you think he had a prescience or an insight or? Well, you know, it wasn't his idea to do those at all. It was this weird case where there was a dealer, Alexander Yolas, who was actually the first dealer ever to give Andy a show in 1952. 
sort of came around again, who was dying of AIDS at that very moment, but had a commission from, uh, I guess it was a, a bank that had the building across the street from Leonardo's Last Supper. So this dealer thought, I'm going to get famous artists to do their versions of The Last Supper. And Andy was the only one who would do it. So it wasn't Andy's idea at all. And of course, it wasn't Andy's idea to die either. And he shouldn't have died. So in a way, I think it's one of those things that's purely coincidence, right? Because he shouldn't have died and it wasn't an idea. It should have just been one more work of art from an artist who went on and did another 20 years worth. Right. But he did have a fear of hospitals, right? And was so strange and terrified of going to hospital and put it off and delayed. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. Everyone it says that, but he did go to the hospital all the time when, when John Gould was sick in hospital and he visited his mom in hospital at various times. So I think that's maybe, I have lots, I can document lots of times he was in hospitals. So I think that maybe he exaggerated the fear. Of, I think he exaggerated it. He He made a big deal of being afraid of hospitals, but it wasn't, I think a crippling fear of hospitals. But you know, there and this is a whole other subject right here. But um, there was a great article. I think it was either in Vanity Fair or the New York Times a few years ago that chronicled just how um, how bad his uh, his physical problems were. That we really didn't even know that he was always having you know um, problems with his kidneys and his organs and everything like that. Do you remember that article? Huh, I wonder who wrote that article. Was that and you? Yes, it is about who wrote oh, that article. Oh my God, that's so funny. It yeah. was. It's, it's a fascinating, fascinating look yeah. into it. So I, I you know, maybe he you was could talk so about that. Sick. He was so sick long before he his final illness, you know. That being shot in 68 really destroyed his insides. Yeah. Like no one realizes, you know. He was able to function. He even did some really good workouts, you know, in the 80s. But he was always pretty sick and... You know, when you're that damaged and you go in for an operation that people call routine, yeah. it's not routine, automatically not routine. You know, he, he he had a hernia the size of a football sticking out of his abdomen. They had to remove that. It was a mess. Yeah. So, you know, he shouldn't have died, but it's not a huge surprise he did. I mean, there are people who just keel over after operations. It's one of the things that happens. A certain percentage of people die after any operation, after being opened up. And I thought um, he was amazing in a way that, that he lived after being shot in 68. Yeah. So. He never should have lived. That's when he should have died, 68. That would not have been a surprise. The doctors thought he was he was going to die, you know. But I then James, St. James would never have met him, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and he would have missed a lot of good art. You know, people only talk about his pop art. But he made lots of good art in the 70s and 80s. There we yeah. go. <laughs> I love I you madly, James. The book would have been much shorter, you know, <laughs> That might have been nice. That might have been it might have been a little less painful to write if it had been a little shorter, but I'm I'm glad he lived. All right, so we'll take a break. Um and then when we come back we'll reveal the number one Andy Warhol thing that makes us go wow. Kinda sort of. Um you're listening to the Wow Report on Radio Andy. You're listening to World of Wonders Wow Report. Things that make us go wow. All right, we're back. Um we are counting down the top ten things that made us go wow. Andy Warhol things that make us go wow. Um, we're with Blake Gottnick, who's the author of the fantastic biography Warhol. And um, what have we got? What's the number one thing, James? I think it. I think I have to say before you say it, it was a brilliant idea of yours to come up with this. Number one. <laughs> um, I just I, number one. I think I often think 
where would Andy be now? What would he be doing? And how would, would he still be as relevant or would he, would, would cancel culture have gotten to him at some point? <laughs> well, cancel culture would have gotten to him because he did a lot of things that you can no longer do in our me too age. Right. right. I mean, he was, yeah. he was definitely did not live by today's morals. He lived by the morals of his own time. Um, the problem, okay. The problem with answering the question, what would Andy be doing today? Where would Andy be? Is that, if we could answer that question, we'd be Andy Warhol, right? If you'd asked anyone in 1961, what's the next big thing? No one could have answered. And his genius, of course, was always figuring out how to do something no one else was doing, doing something more interesting than anyone else. So I don't, you know, I, I dream about it. I think about it. People say, oh, would he be on Instagram? And yeah, I'd I say, I say, would he be tweeting up a storm or would he, would he sort of leave that to, to the masses? Well, no, he wouldn't do it because everyone's doing it, right? Or if he did it, it would be in some strange comment on it. Or, you know, I just can't imagine because he did not want to do boring things. He didn't want to be just like everyone else. Now, being, uh, you know, a flamboyant gay guy, I hate to tell you this is no longer, you know, cutting edge the way it was for Andy in 19, well, 1949 in college when he could have been killed for it, you know? Well, but also by the same token, being meta is something that everyone in the 1990s, so so like he wouldn't be doing that either. So would he just be a a simple old man living in a, in a, you know, in his castle high on the hill or... Maybe he'd be a serious intellectual. There's a radical idea, right? Maybe he'd actually let his brain show and go off somewhere and become a sober, serious thinker about the state of the world. Maybe he'd become a poet. I could imagine him being a really good poet. You know, I don't think we don't have any example of it, but this is my little imagination. Him well, writing was, really I, I can profound see him doing like haikus, like doing sort of like sort of uh, very uh, highbrow haiku type things. But yeah, that, deep, though, deep, deep, deep. The, the Bob Coachella book was a funny moment where Bob Coachella is like putting together Interview Magazine and shows it to Andy. And I think like one of the things was a poem. And Andy just flicks through the magazine and then just said, no more poems. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and he was totally right. This is the very early days. This is like 1969. And he was totally right. They had to leave the 60s behind, you know. Poetry right. the 60s thing, and you wanted to leave that <laughs> behind. And so, I have something else. Right. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a uh, earth cam pointed at his grave. You know, these yeah, on the internet, right. earth cams are all over the world. Statue of Liberty. But there's one pointed at Andy Warhol's grave. And someone told me the story that the reason why there's an EarthCam at Andy Warhol's grave is that the guy who came up with EarthCam met Andy Warhol and that Andy Warhol told him that's what he should do, gave him the idea for EarthCam. That's I, that, again, it's one of those stories I haven't heard, but I probably have only heard one one thousandth of all the possible stories about Andy Warhol. And some of them may even be true. Who knows? <laughs> you know, if they go back into the tapes of those of that earth cam pointing at the at Andy's grave, those somewhere in there is me burying something under the headstone when I first began my project. And I won't tell anyone what it was. But I went and visited the grave very early on in my project and buried a little something that Andy might want under the headstone. <laughs> well, so now I, no one should go and dig up under that headstone. I'm worried. 
I do, you know, uh, sort of a, a part two to, to the, the question of what he would be doing is, do you think that there is anybody today who has taken on the mantle of Andy Warhol? Somebody, is, is there a Andy, the son of Andy Warhol, you know, out there that is doing the same types of things and has the same place in our culture that Andy had? You know, there are people doing the same kind of thing. I think Damien Hirst is a really good example. People like to to shit on Damien, but he's done some really weird stuff, like the way he intersects with society, the way he intersects with money, not so much the shark in the tank, but like when he has an auction of his own work, which is kind of a performance as well, that stuff is very Andy. But of course, it's Andy because it's kind of copying Andy, right? I mean, it's right. not exactly the same, but it's you know, it's a clearly follows in the footsteps rather than being Andy having the place in the culture that Andy has. And no one's got that. Nobody, nobody has that intersection of high and low and, uh, you know, entertainment and art and, and society and everything. Right? Or even just greatness. Like what artists can from today could even an art critic like me say, oh yeah, there's someone, a giant in the making. And there just, there are no, there haven't been any giants in art, even though there's some artists I really like. There hasn't been a giant in art for a long time now. And maybe that's just where the culture is. I don't know what the answer is. And maybe maybe there is one and I just, you know, who's 18 and in two years, everyone will be raving. But uh, just there hasn't been anyone like Andy, as great as Andy for a very long time now. What do you think of Banksy? Sorry, couldn't hear you. I was oh, water. No, what you- I'm joking. I, I'm not a big Banksy fan. Oh, okay. <laughs> he's fine. He's fine. But he's not a major, you know, he makes... <laughs> He does cute stuff, and I'm happy with that. He's perfectly good, but he ain't no. He ain't revolutionizing the very nature of art, which is what Andy did. You know, it's it's it takes more than just making cute things you stick on a wall. And on well, that, note. <laughs> I can't thank you enough for joining us. This has been absolutely my favorite episode, and uh, for teaching us so much about Andy Warhol. And congratulations on the amazing book. You're all right. Well, that's all from the Wire Report this week. Uh, same time, same place next week. In the meantime, do something that makes the world go wow. wow. <laughs>